much. We good? We good? No? My thing says red. Oh, there we go. All right. Now we're good. All right. Yes, it's my privilege to be here once again. Uh, if this is your home church, you have probably, possibly heard me before, and so it's good for, you to, for me to be back here with you. Um, my name is Russ. I travel for a living. I work with an organization of churches that um, is a small group throughout Canada. We have about 150 churches across the nation. There's 50 here in Western Canada, and my job is a regional director to uh, help out and do what I can to, uh, with uh, whether it's church leaders, uh, boards, uh, pastors. And so um, Willow Park is my home church, and so when I'm back in Kelowna, then it's just my joy to be part of Willow Park, and uh, it is a thrill. Uh, just a, a real, real joy for me to be part of this family of churches. Uh, I was spoke, spoke at last night at 33, um, as Pastor Phil's away on holidays right now, and then Glenn had contacted me uh, several months ago, which I love about Glenn, is that whenever he asks me to speak, it's always way in advance, and that's great. I appreciate that very, very much, because it gives you a chance to look at the schedule and make sure that's all happening. Uh, my other good friend at Willow at 33, he doesn't contact me quite so far in advance, and I love him still. Uh, We'll just let him remain nameless for the time being. So, uh, but it's, it's, I just love this church. I'm so happy to be part of this church family. And as I have told you before, I travel for a living and I get to see lots of churches and lots of different situations. And so to, to be part of a church where God is so clearly at work and there are good things happening, um, when I am at home here in Cologne, it is just a real joy for me to be here. And so uh, if this is your church home, God bless you. If you're looking for a church, boy, I couldn't highly, more highly recommend this particular uh, group of churches wherever you're located here in our wonderful city of Kelowna. If you're visiting with us this morning, then we just uh, are glad that you're here. And we're in the midst of a series this summer on minor prophets, which is interesting because often that's not a part of the scriptures that we generally go to. Uh, and so when uh, I knew that that was going to be the series for the summer, and then I had these uh, couple of opportunities to speak, I asked, well, what would you like me to speak on? And they said, well, here's what's left. So I got the leftovers. But really, when it comes to the Bible, is there really leftovers? There's not, okay? And so I'm going to be speaking out of the book of Zephaniah, and um, you may not know where that is and may want to look that up now, and I'm going to pray in a few moments, and we're going to look at that together. And so if you've got to look in the index, that's not cheating, okay? That's just being smart. And so uh, look in the index, find out where it is, or pull up your, uh, your electronic systems and get to that part of the Bible, and we're going to be looking at the book of Zephaniah this morning in the prophet Zephaniah and what he has to say and I've titled this life lessons from a guy named Zephaniah and so uh, that's what we're going to do we're going to look at three different life lessons there's just three chapters in this uh, in this book and uh, we're going to pull different lessons out of each one of the chapters and hopefully there will be things that will be applicable to us and we can uh, have them resonate within our hearts and souls but let me pray for us and then we'll dive in together father we thank you that as I mentioned there is no leftover in your bible there's no part that sort of um doesn't count or isn't important or isn't significant it's 66 books put together into one and you father sovereignly oversaw that and that's just miraculous in and of itself but it's your communication to us it's your love letter to us it's your revelation of who you are so that we can have a chance to grasp the truth of how profoundly you love us and what you've done for us to have relationship with you. And we've sung about it already this morning and about um, the work that your son did on a cross so that we could have relationship, that we could have salvation, that we could have forgiveness for our sins. It's amazing, God. And so as we look at this minor prophet named Zephaniah, as we unpack the life lessons that I believe are there for us this morning, 
I ask and invite your Holy Spirit to move in our midst this day in a way that would be uniquely you to each one of us who are uniquely created by you. And God will give you all the praise and the honor and the glory in advance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when it comes to life lessons, I'm sure we all have different ways of learning them. Some of us are, are experiential learners. We need to actually go through the, the thing uh, to learn it. Some of us are readers, and so we're like, yeah, I, I, I want to hear, I want to read, I want to understand. Uh, some of us are um, uh, just uh, watchers. We can look at other people and see the mistakes or the things that they're doing right and say, hey, that makes sense to me. I, I, I can do that. And we learn different ways. Well, just yesterday, I received an email from a friend of mine down in Ontario who um, uh, just uh, sent me this story that I want to share with you because there's a life lesson in this story. And I just thought, that is so cool. And it's really one of the ways in which I learn is through the idea of story. So there's this um, young crocodile who's swimming upstream and, and he sees the elder crocodile just floating off on the side by the shore and, and he's obviously napping. And so the young crocodile knows that this, the elder is known for his... Uh, ferociousness for his ability to, um, to capture and, and feed in a way that few of them are, are able to do in the same way. And so he swims up beside me and he says, hey, I want to learn from you. I, I want you to teach me. I want you to tell me how to do this. And, and the older crocodile just opens up one eye and looks at the young guy and doesn't say a word and closes his eye again and goes back to napping. Well, the young fellow is just, he's, he's now a little bit offended, actually, and, and uh, he's feeling a little rejected. And so he takes off upstream and thinks to himself, I'll show that guy. And he takes off, and he's gone for hours, and he's catching a couple of catfish, and he's quite proud of himself. And so after a half a day has gone by, he thinks, I'm going to go back and tell the old guy what I've done. And so he swims back again and, and thinks, well, I just want to learn. And so he goes up to him, he says, hey, uh, you're in the exact same spot you were before. You're just floating here. You're just napping. Like, you know, um, can you tell me how to do this? And he says, I've had a pretty successful morning myself. I've caught a couple of catfish. And, and the old crocodile just opens up one eye and looks at him again and closes the eye again and doesn't say a word. Well, the young guy's now even more offended. So he takes off and with a flash of his tail and, and just swims away upstream and he's gone for the rest of the day and he finally finds a, a little heron that's on the side of the bank and he goes up and he grabs it and as he takes it in his mouth, he thinks, I'm not even going to eat this. I'm going to take it back and show off to the old guy because he's got nothing. So as he's swimming back down the stream, he comes around the bend and just as he comes around the bend, he sees the old guy in the exact same position that he's been all day long, but just one thing's different. There's a wildebeest who's just stepped to the shore to take a drink. And as the wildebeest bends his head down to lap the water, with a quick flash of his tail, the old crocodile's up out of the water, grabs the wildebeest, takes him underneath the water, and begins to devour him. The young guy's watched all this, and he's still got the little heron in his mouth that he has. And he swims over up beside the old guy and says, uh, I need you to teach me. How did you do what you just did? And the old guy looked at him and in between bites and the wildebeest, he said to him, I did nothing. Interesting life lesson there. We're going to come back to that in a few moments. I said there's three different life lessons in these three different chapters, and so if you've got your book or your Bible open up to Zephaniah, we want to stay there for the rest of the message. But um, if I was to categorize these, these lessons, I would say lesson number one is... is um, extremely countercultural in our day and age, in our North American society, in the, in the fast-paced society that you and I find ourselves living. Uh, lesson number two is just a very practical one that, that is going to help us if we'll 
discipline ourselves to put it into practice in the sense of, of its application to our day-to-day living. And the third one is just overwhelming. And you'll understand when we get to it what I mean by that. So Zephaniah, who was he? What was going on? Um, he was a prophet. If you have your Bibles, you look and you say, well, in the opening of few verses or few, the opening verse he says um, that the word came to him and then he identifies himself he says I'm the son of Cushai the son of Gedaliah the son of Amariah the son of Hezekiah now scholars tell us right away that that's fairly unusual that he would go back four generations to identify himself but on that fourth generation he identifies that he was the son of the fourth generation of Hezekiah now Hezekiah was a good king And so scholars tend to believe that he probably was going back to say, in my lineage, I have this guy who is a good guy in the family line. Do we know that for an absolute fact? Well, no, it's a guess probably. Does it impact the message of what we want to share here this morning? No, but it's just an interesting thing to take note that that Hezekiah was a good guy. And so Zephaniah was speaking during the time of a king named Josiah. Now, the interesting thing about Josiah was that he came to the throne of Judah when he was only eight years of age. Obviously, couldn't reign in and of himself, and so he had help, but his background was not good at all because he was predeceased, or uh, um, he, was, uh, he followed after Manasseh and Ammon, and they were wicked, wicked leaders for the, the nation of Judah, and so uh, he had a bad heritage. And so he comes, and at age 8, he takes over. Scholars say that probably around the age of 16, there's a, a hint of him becoming um, spiritually astute, having a heart for God. And by age 18, scholars say that there was revival that was beginning to take place within the nation of Judah that uh, was instituted by this good guy, Josiah, who's a young man, but he was ruling wisely and righteously. So where does Zephaniah fit in? Well, we know that he fits in prior to Uh, Josiah being 18 years of age because there's no hint in these three chapters in Zephaniah of any revival whatsoever. He's calling the people to repent yet, as many of the prophets do. And so that just kind of puts him in place. It kind of gives us a bit of an idea of where he comes from and what he is about. And so um, what's going on? Well, the first life lesson is the life lessons of silence before God, as we have it up there on the screen. Now, if we're in Zephaniah 1, verses 2 through to 6, is typical of prophets when they're sort of unleashing the fact that you guys are in trouble because you're not walking with God. So he unleashes for, for those six verses, up to verse 6, what's wrong with the nation and what God's going to do to them if they don't straighten out. And then we get to verse 7, which is the first life lesson, because he says in verse 7, after he's told them all the bad news, now be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. But that first phrase, I thought, wow, be silent before God. So here's the prophet looking out at the people, and he's saying, I've told you the bad news. I've just given you a, a short picture of, of how bad things are. Now here's what I want you to do. Zip it. Come before God and be quiet. We need to cultivate a habit of silence. And I firmly believe that there is nothing within our society that helps us to this place. Um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, going for some blood tests, and so I'm sitting in the, in the clinic, and, I, and I'm waiting for my turn to go up to, to give my blood. And, uh, and there's a mother and teenage daughter that have come in, and, and uh, the daughter's got her phone and her earbuds in, and, and all that's just natural. It's just life. It's the way things are. And so uh, at one point, the mom's going to go and, and, and go and get her blood test done, when all of a sudden the nurse says to her, well, actually, both of yours are together. Why don't you bring your daughter with her? 
And so she goes back to her daughter who's sitting in her chair with her, her earbuds in. And she says, uh, hey, come on, we're going to do this together. And uh, her daughter doesn't hear her because the earbud's in, of course. So then she says it to her again. Without taking her earbuds out, her daughter looks at her and says, What? Which, of course, is the loudness of the music that's being played in her earbuds. And so it doesn't sound loud to her. But the whole rest of the room just shook for a second and looked over. And then finally she took her earbuds out and she goes, What? And then off they went. So I was having lunch with my good friend Sid Coop, who lots of you know. And I was telling him that story the same day that I'd done that, I had that experience. And he says to me, Russ, he says, that's a picture of our society. Because we all have our earbuds in. And that doesn't mean our physical earbuds. It just means the noise of our society is so overwhelming that when we get a verse like this that says, come before God and be quiet, there's nothing naturally within our ebb and flow of life that leads us to that place, I believe. Now, if you do have lots of silence in your life, God bless you. That's wonderful. I trust that you are using it wisely by being silent before God to listen to him speak to you. But that's what the prophet's encouraging. He's saying, come before God and be quiet. Come before God and listen. The story that I told you of the crocodile, he was there and he was silent because he was getting ready. He knew that at the right appropriate time, the feeding would appear. And he'd be able to respond in that moment out of his quietness, out of his silence. And that article that, uh, that he sent me was a, a business article. It wasn't Christian. It was a completely secular article talking about how many high-profile business leaders are cultivating what they call um, weeks of silence. And so they'll go for entire weeks where they'll disconnect from their business. They'll disconnect from uh, everything from a, uh, a digital sense. And they'll just be quiet to allow their thoughts to percolate so that from a business standpoint, they're ready to go into the next phase of what they're about to do. I think from a spiritual standpoint, if business people are learning the lesson, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, it would do us so good to cultivate the habit of silence. So when I thought about that, I thought, well, how do we do that? Well, I think silence is actually like a spiritual muscle. And so um, if I said to you, okay, this afternoon what I'd like uh, us to do is is we're going to go and run a marathon. Not judging anybody, but just by visual appearance and looking out at the audience today, I'm going to say that probably there'd be a minimum of us who'd be able to do that. I'm not saying no one at all, but I'm just saying I don't think the majority of us would be ready to run a marathon. Why? Because there's lots of training that has to take place to run a marathon. You don't just step up one day and say, hey, there's a marathon this weekend. I think I'm going to do it. You train for a long period of time to get your muscles into shape to actually go and do that activity. Well, if I told you now, in light of that reality, that this afternoon I want you to go and spend four hours in complete silence before God, I suspect that within the first little while of us practicing that, we'd be like, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm listening. I don't, I, I don't know. I'd, and our minds would wander and we'd want to turn some music on or something. Why? Because we don't have the spiritual muscle of silence before God. I believe that it's a muscle and it can be developed and the, pay, the dividend will be great if we will take the time to cultivate this silence and this muscle. came across these words recently in an article I was reading as well. And I quote, he says, When we enter into the poor and powerless place of silence, where Christ, now listen to this, where Christ seeks our company and not our performance, 
our soul has the chance to reawaken to the presence of God. Let me read that to you again. When we enter into the poor and powerless place of silence, where Christ seeks our company and not our performance, our soul has the chance to reawaken to the presence of God. Reawaken to the presence of God. Why? Because in my busyness, I have a hard time even allowing God the opportunity to speak into my life because my value system is so often based on my busy schedule and not on being in tune with what my father would say to me. Silence. It allows us the opportunity to reawaken to the very presence of our father. All of these life lessons are relational in nature. We need to believe that there is great reward awaiting us, relationally speaking, if we'll take the time to be silent before God. Life lesson number one. Life lesson number two is in chapter two, and it's the life lesson of obedience to God. Now, it's interesting that in chapter two and chapter three, um, we get the same message, only they're sort of inverted. And let me just read it to you so you uh, hear what I'm saying. So in chapter two, verse three, we read the prophet who's saying he's still going through the bad news of what they need to be doing. And then he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So interesting instruction. So then we go over to chapter 3, verse 2, and we read these words, only they're inverted. So listen to this. He's talking about uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. And he says, she listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. So here that, in that one side of things, there's this idea of God calling us to actually obey him, that's his desire for us from a relational standpoint, and so not an obedience that's based out of um, performance, or duty, or ritual, or religion, but an obedience that's based out of a heart for my father, where I look at my father, I see what he has to say in his word, and I say, I want to do this. I want to please him. I want to walk with him. Because I believe in that there is great reward, even relationally speaking. And so the writer of uh, Zephaniah, when he writes in in chapter 3, verse 2, he talks about how the city of Jerusalem listens to no voice, she accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord and she does not draw near to her God. So if we invert those, we'd say, well, what he's telling us is that we need to listen to God. We need to accept correction from God when it comes our way. We need to trust in God and we need to draw near to him. Why? Because those are the things that God is going to pour out his blessing upon. And it's interesting in both chapter 2 and chapter 3, the connection of humility and obedience are there. Chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Hmm. Interesting. Why is that so important? Well, just like the prophets of old, when they would reach out to Israel and Judah to call them back into a proper relationship with God, there were times when actually Israel or Judah were going through the religious rituals which had become normative to them, but it was an activity not based in relationship. And so Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says to the nation, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. And then over in Isaiah chapter 1, in the very opening of the, the prophet's words to the nation, 
he says this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In other words, you're religiously doing the right thing, but your heart isn't doing the right thing. So he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. God's saying to them that there's this way of me knowing whether you're actually doing what you say you're doing. It's in your actions. And when we move to the New Testament... We read that uh, Jesus, in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, was asked, what must we do, the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, he says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And then in John 14, he goes through this whole process of saying, the one who loves me will actually do what I command. And he says it three different times in John chapter 14. That I'll, I can see it because you're, you're doing it. You're living it out. You're not just saying words. You're not just religiously going through some motions but you're actually doing the things that I've called you to do. Again, it's relational in nature. Do the instructions that God has got here, not out of a religious volition, a religious obligation, but rather out of a relational heart that says, this is who my Father is and this is who He's calling me to be and I'm going to act on that. So we see that is relational in nature. We've got this idea of um, wanting to uh, take time to be silent before God. We've got this picture of, of being obedient to God. And then the last one is chapter 3, verse 17. It's the life lesson of actually accepting God's love for us. The third relational instruction and life lesson. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 causes all kinds of consternation for scholars. They really don't know what to do with this verse. Let me read it to you and see what you think. So we've gotten through the, the bad news. Uh, Zephaniah is calling the people to repent and uh, establishing them in a right relationship with the, with the Lord. And then he says this in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Hmm. Let me just unpack. There's five clear statements here in that verse, and let's just kind of go through them quickly and see how God's love is seen. So first of all, His love is seen in His presence. The Lord your God is with you. Um, that's a biblical truth that perhaps some of us here this morning need to be reminded of. That actually, in your day-to-day living, this is a truth, that God is with you. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's right there. Again, the New Testament promise of that is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, when we are quoted uh, God saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's a biblical truth. You and I can count on this day by day by day. So his love is seen in his presence. We see also that his love is seen in his protection. And it says that um, the mighty one who will save. Now, scholars love this one because uh, they can go back to King David, and David had these mighty warriors who were uh, his best of his best of his best, who were right close to him, and they say, this is the picture of God, that he is the mighty of the mightiest, and he's right there with you all the time. And so we got the blessing of his presence seen in, in that his love for us, but we also have this, uh, the, the blessing of his presence by his protection. 
When I was in grade nine, I grew up in southern Ontario, we had a thing way back then, it was uh, an archaic idea that they finally did away with, was this idea of grade nine initiation. And so for a week, in that first week of September, you would go into high school and the grade 12s could basically initiate you and do whatever they wanted to you. Um, it was only supposed to be restricted to the actual physical school place that you went to school, but uh, it went way beyond that. I can tell you this. This is a fact. In fact, it got so bad that uh, in the years afterwards that finally they got to a point because of legal issues and everything else that they got rid of the whole idea of initiation because it was abusive in nature. However, when I was in grade nine, I had this guy that my older brother, who had uh, many different characters, and when I say characters, you let your imagination go where you want with that. He had many different characters who were friends, but one of his friends was Brian Tice, who was a, a motorcycle guy. And uh, Brian would ride his motorcycle sometimes to school, but often he'd walk, but he always wore a motorcycle jacket. He wore motorcycle boots. He had uh, leathers and chains and all that kind of stuff. And so on the very first day of the week of initiation, he comes by my locker. And I need to tell you, I have had no conversation with Brian Tice other than to say hi, because he would be picking my brother from time to time. He comes by my locker, my grade nine locker, and he says to me, Russ, let's walk home together. I am not going to say no to him. Um, for a number of reasons. Number one of which I'm terrified of him. But also I think, this is good because I'm trying to exit the school on initiation and I know I'm going to be in trouble, but now I'm not going to be. Why? Well, because Brian Tice is walking with me. And Brian doesn't have to say anything. He's just one of those guys that when you visually look at him, you think, Whatever, just don't, just leave him alone. And because I'm walking right beside him, then you leave me alone as well. And so by Tuesday and Wednesday, he's now picking me up at my house on the way to school so that we can get right to my class without any initiation happening. And then he picks me up right after school and we leave the school again together and so no, no initiation happens. So for one whole week, I had nothing done to me while I had all kinds of friends who were being destroyed through initiation. And it was an interesting experience to watch because you see, nobody, like Brian never said anything to anybody. He didn't say, don't touch this guy. It was just clear I was with Brian, and so because I was with Brian, nobody touched me. That's just a really small, minor picture that doesn't even begin to do God justice. If you read the story of Job, we realize that, hey, there's hard times that come our way, and sometimes those hard times are even allowed by God, but even when they are allowed, God even says, to, if or when, when he is going to allow the enemy to come against Job, he says, okay, you can go this far, but don't go any further. There was always a line that he was dealing with there. Why? Because at the end of, the, ha end of uh, the picture is that Job's life is in God's hands. My life is in God's hands. I have a protector, Zephaniah says, who by the very first part of that verse reminds me that he's with me all the time. My life is in his hands. So his love is seen in his presence, his love is seen in his protection. But look at the next part of the verse. He says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. His love is seen in his delight. Another phrasing for that in another translation says, he will take great delight in you. Do you find that easy to believe? Just saying, yeah, in my relationship with God, I, I just have no doubt that every single day he takes great delight in me. Think about that for a moment. This is the God of all creation. There are how many billions of people on the face of the earth? And yet the Bible says that he actually takes great delight in in you, individually. We're not talking here about the people of God. We're talking here individually. That God takes great delight in you. 
when I was reading this and studying this a few weeks ago, I was uh, reading this uh, blog, and in this blog, uh, the person said, and I quote, there has never been a moment that God regretted creating you. Never been a moment that God looked at you and thought, oops, eh, wasn't one of my greater days. Never been a moment like that, ever. Now, um, I have counseled with people who have told me that they regretted the relationships that they're in. They regretted the job that they had. They regretted sometimes the children in their life. I've heard all kinds of horrific stories about people regretting things that they've done or said or experienced. But you and I serve a God who has never once looked at you and thought to himself, I regret creating you. When I read that, I was sitting in my office here in Kelowna, and I wanted to move on because I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. And it's like the Spirit of God said, no, I want you to read that again. And, and I read it again, and, and I wanted to move on because now I was getting uncomfortable because of how personal this was. And it was like the Spirit of God was saying, do you hear that truth? I have never regretted creating you. I delight in you. And it got to a point as I sat in my office that day that I couldn't read anything because my eyes were so watery as I was being humbled again by the incredible love that my Heavenly Father has for me. And I was saying a lot of yeah buts in my mind. Yeah, but God, I mean, you know I've messed up. And yeah, but I could do better. And yeah, but, and I go on and on about my performance. And this isn't based in performance. This is based in relationship. This is a God who looks at you and says, I delight in you. I've known you since you were created in your mother's womb. And I take great delight in you this very day. Wow. His love is seen in his delight. The next part of the verse says that he will quiet you by his love. And that's seen in his care for us. And the picture there, scholars tell us, is that it's, it's a mother caring for a, a newborn, caring for an infant, caring for a baby that you know, they, they love and they carry and they take care of and they, and they nurse and they make sure that everything is, that is necessary for that child to sustain life and to grow is being taken care of. Why? Because the mother loves that child. God's picture is the same that way for us. He will do the things necessary in order for you and I to grow in our relationship with him. It's a spiritual battle, this thing we call life. And in the midst of those tough times, and today may be one of those tough time days for you individually, I don't know. But in the midst of that, our enemy wants us to forget or disbelieve this truth. That it says, he will quiet you by his love. He will take care of you. He will be there for you, beside you, with you, caring for you, carrying you when necessary the last part is the one that scholars essentially throw up their arms and go we don't we don't know we don't know because look what it says so it says that his love is seen in his song it says he will exalt over you with loud singing (laughs) I don't know uh, one of the scholars I was reading was saying how that, um, he went back into Genesis and said, you know, the picture of creation is so amazing because we have this idea of God's voice because it says, you know, God said, let there be, and he spoke creation into existence. 
And so if he's got that kind of power by his voice to speak into the uh, cosmos, what you and I have the ability to see with our eyes and, and to fall back in wonder and say, wow, look at how beautiful this place is that he just spoke into existence. Then my question would be, what does it sound like when he looks at you and says, I'm going to sing over you individually. He has a song that he would sing about you. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I think it's pretty amazing that you and I would have a God who's so relational that he would look at you and love you so much that he'd say, I'm going to move from words to song about your life. Wow. I suspect there's a lot of yeah buts going on. Yeah, but you don't know. And you're right, I don't. But I have a father who does know. And this is his word. And this is what he says about you and I today. It's amazing. His love is seen in his song. So what do we do with this message, these life lessons? Well, let me give you just a few challenges in light of each life lesson. So the first one is to just start to spend some time in silence before God. And I would encourage you to just start with a few moments. Don't try to chalk off an hour or a day or whatever. Just build up that spiritual muscle of silence before God. And this isn't silence with music. This is just bare silence. Nothing else. And what we're doing is we're inviting the Spirit of God to speak into our lives in that quiet. Begin with just a few moments. Secondly, do regular self-inventories. Ask yourself this, that question, am I actually obeying the Word of God? Is there something that I need to confess? Uh, today, am I walking in obedience with the God who actually loves me? And am I loving him with my obedience? And then thirdly, take Zephaniah 3.17 and put it somewhere that you will see it every day this coming week. Maybe on your mirror or in your car, on your phone, somewhere that you will be reminded over and over and over again how much he loves you. As I was getting this message ready, my daughter came over to spend a little time with us one afternoon a few weeks ago and um, she's got a five-month-old child, Sawyer. And so Sawyer was having a, a bit of a rough time that afternoon and and so I said, give him to me. And so I picked him up and carried him, and he was wrestling and frothing around. And, and so we walked into my office, and I closed the door, and I just began walking back and forth in my office. And I said, buddy, I, I love you. you. You can't even understand, as your grandfather, how much I love you. And I just began walking with him and patting his back and, and telling him over and over and over again how much I was caring for him. And I would, I would go to the ends of the earth and I would do whatever needed to be done in order for him to be okay. And he began to slowly start, stop thrashing it around so much. And so I finally sat in the rocking chair in my office and I began to rock him and, and his body began to slowly relax. And, and then you felt him go completely limp and at peace. And he was asleep in my chest. And for the next 35 minutes, I rocked him. I talked to God about him. And at the end of that 35 minutes, he awoke and he was fine. And we went back out and gave him to his mom. And later that evening, I sent her a text. And I said, you know, this morning, I was out in Kelowna here doing one of my favorite things, which was golfing with one of my best friends. And so it was a great part of my day. But the very, very best part of my day, the very best part of my day was those 35 minutes that I had Sawyer and I told him how much I loved him. And I didn't want to move 
in that time that I had with him. And my father reminded me that when I come to him and I surrender to him afresh, that in his day, it's the best moments that he could have because he's got my full attention and he wants me to know I've got you. Whatever's going on in life is going to be okay because, son, you can't even begin to understand how deeply I love you. Let me pray for you. Father, you're amazing. You're so relational, God. You invite us into this journey that's not religious, it's not performance, it's, it's about growing in, in a, a deeper, more profound relationship with a Father who will go so far to remind us and to show us of your great love for us, Father. And so as we look at these three life lessons and, and we begin to cultivate this muscle of, of being silent spiritually before you so we can hear you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to strengthen that muscle of silence. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us when we're not walking the walk. And if we're just going through the motions, that we would quickly come back to a heart relationship and say, Father, I want to be obedient to you because I love you, not because I'm trying to perform. And then lastly, God, may we just continually be overwhelmed with how great your love is for us. And may Zephaniah 3.17 go down deep into our souls even this very day. And may we be wowed once again of how great the Father's love is for us. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.